You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Easy come. People are the ultimate spectacle. And now, now you're going to see it, Yowza, the Derby! One couple, and only one, who walks out of here over broken bodies and broken dreams, carrying the grand prize of 1,500 silver dollars. I mean, is if you think about it, cattle ain't got it much worse than us. She ain't pregnant. I'm Nelson Eddy. So what's healthier than having a kid? Number 78 is it? We got a poor judge over there. What are you gonna do? Put us in cages and let them throw peanuts at us? The boy from 67 is down. He's definitely down. Look at us. We're all like this now. Dirty, swollen feet, no sleep. What do you want? Six, seven. Shut up, God damn it! I'm heading up. Oh, hang on, Jesus! Jesus! They ain't quitting. Projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Emily Entravia. I wish I was dead. <laughs> also in the booth this week is Mr. Scott Frank. Hello, everyone. Hold your breath for 10 seconds and make sure we're all still alive. Our examination of 1969 continues with our first American film that we've discussed this year. They shoot horses, don't they? 
directed by Sidney Pollack and based off a novel by Horace McCoy. The film stars Michael Sarazen as Robert and Jane Fonda as Gloria, a pair who get thrown together in a marathon dance contest during the Great Depression. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, you have been warned. So, Emily, when was the first time you saw They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And what did you think? It was probably about 10 years ago, and I must have seen the title on like a list of Battle Royale-esque movies, because I don't know how else I ever would have heard of it or thought to have seen it. It hasn't been easily accessible. It was never one that really came up a lot in discussion. But I remember sitting down to watch it one day knowing, oh, this is sort of like a version of Series 7, The Contenders type thing. And then I rewatched it a few years later. Uh, so it's been, I guess, three times now that I've watched it. I love it. I just find it fascinating and, and terrifying and so many things. How about you, Scott? The first time I think I saw it was probably almost 20 years ago, I want to say. I had not heard of it, and, and Sidney Pollack had become a, a mentor of mine, and I had, had never really looked at that movie before. And I watched it, I, I, it must have been at least 20 years ago, the first time I saw it, and then the last time I saw it was about a week ago. Yeah, it seems like this movie was MIA for a while when I was listening to the audio commentary. You can't find it, by the way. Oh, yeah, really? It's not streaming, Yeah. I thought I bought this. I think the DVD is like a hundred bucks or something. I, yeah, it's very hard. To I find. bought this on Blu-ray somewhere. Where the heck did I get it on Blu-ray from? Is it an American Blu-ray or is it a different region? Oh wow, that's a good question. But it had some extras on there. Some really janky extras, but some decent ones as well. There was like uh, this one about Jane Fonda, and it was basically just a voiceover with some really shitty-looking previews. <laughs> I was like, could you not find better versions of these previews? Like the the one for uh, horses was like so pink and nasty looking. I stand corrected. It is available now on DVD from Amazon for $14 or $20. So now it's accessible. But I know about five years ago when I went to rewatch it again, I think I had to get it from my library because otherwise I would have bought it. But at the time it wasn't in print. So I think it's had a bit of a journey to end up on home media. And there's not a lot of interest in it. It's not a movie. It's kind of a movie that's talked about when you talk about film history, but it's not a movie that bubbles to the surface automatically when people are talking about movies, um, it, which is interesting because it was an important movie and certainly important in its time. Well, it was nominated for so many Oscars. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. Best director. Everything but best picture. I yeah. Think. And then mm -hmm. Gig Young ended up winning for this. Mm -hmm. Best performance he'd ever given, I think, in anything. And a shocker, because you, you, I never thought of him, you know, as much of an actor. And, and seeing him in other things and then watching him in this, it, it, was, it was a revelation. He was amazing. Just amazing. Well, in that this was kind of Jane Fonda's, I don't want to say comeback, but this is after she had been making these movies with Roger Vadim, and her last film before this was Barbarella, if memory serves. And so this was such a departure from Barbarella. And marked a kind of long collaboration with Sidney Pollack after that. They did several movies together after this. Right. Kind of the complete polar opposite of a character of Barbarella in many ways. Yes. <laughs> where you have this positive, supernatural, super strong, super confident, you know, otherworldly creature. And then you have Gloria, oh, who yeah. is everything Barbarella is not. It was really strange. I was watching this movie with my wife and another relative, and they 
could hear Jane Fonda's voice, but they couldn't see Jane Fonda in the face. And I was just like, well, yeah, this is totally Jane Fonda. But they're like, no, we just don't see it. This is not the Jane Fonda that we think of. And I was like, okay, interesting. And for me, I think this was one of my first Jane Fonda films. So to me, this is Jane Fonda. When I think of Jane Fonda, I think of that something she does better than I almost anyone I can think of. She plays anger really well. And just this built up dissatisfaction with the world. That's always what I think of when I think of Jane Fonda, because to me, this is such a definitive performance. And cynical. She does she does oh, yeah. this kind of cynicism really well. And it I think you know, this role is is really close to her role as as Brie and Clute. You know, they're very similar in many ways. Um, these kinds of cynical, worldly, tired people. One of the commentary tracks she uh, where she's speaking, she was saying how this for her this really was a chance to act and collaborate. And Cindy Sydney Pollock took her, like wanted to talk to her about the role. And something I thought that was so interesting, she said, was how he helped her be not nice, which, I mean, any woman knows is goes against all of our natural instincts. And for an actress and for somebody like Jane Fonda, especially at that age, who was going to be the ingenue and who was going to always play the character that you're supposed to root for, how hard it was to get to that point of being a character you you know, I mean, you you do root for her, but she plays it where she doesn't want you to. And that's hard. Uh, and she even said that she doesn't know what she couldn't have done Clute had she not done this role. And what's interesting, too, about Sidney Pollack is that he says every story he does is a, is a form of a love story. And he used to say that it's a love story where the main characters never get together. And if you look back at his movies, they don't. They never yep. get together. There's a love story at the core, but they they never they never end up um, in love at the end. It's fascinating. I love that this is set so much in one location, and that it just uses this space so well. And that we have we start off outside, and it's one of the few times that we actually get the outdoors. We start off both outside in a flashback from Robert's point of view of this horse running and he and his grandfather. And it really kind of hands us the title of they shoot horses, don't they? This horse that ends up breaking its leg. But then we also have the outdoors with him on the beach carrying these cowboy boots around. And we have this, almost like a voiceover from Gig Young, who's explaining some of the rules, but it's coming from inside of the space that we'll be in for the rest of the movie. And I love when he comes in and just how it changes the whole tone of everything and that we stay in that space through pretty much everything other than the flash forwards and any sort of like side stories that we might possibly have. But it is just so claustrophobic. Even though you feel that that space is huge, it seems to get tighter and tighter as the time goes on. Yeah, there should be nothing natural once you go inside. You start with this, you know, scenic, bucolic setting, and then you go into a beach, and then you are in that dance hall, and the most you're going to get is a door open letting in the sun. Until the end. Yeah, and I I also think in the book, I was looking at the book, there's an economy in the movie that's really smart. It's smart, but on the one hand, it's also pretty, pretty daring in that he walks into the dance hall and Gig Young, I think his character's name is Rocky, 
just says, hey, you, she's looking for a new partner because her partner is is got some sort of cold, which, you know, speaking of today is kind of interesting. <laughs> He's coughing and Gig Young says, I don't want you to infect everybody else. And so now she's without a partner. And he just looks back at Michael Sarazen, who has stumbled in and, and knocked over the kind of standee they had there and says, you, how about you? And he just says, OK, I'll do it. Whereas in the book, they meet on an audition. They're both auditioning for something, yes. and they meet and and then decide to do this. And um, here you have to make a big leap of faith that he's going to commit to doing this, having just sort of stumbled in there off the beach. It's kind of a fascinating thing, and it somehow is okay. There's something very whimsical and kind of magical about Robert in the film that I really like. And they talk about this a lot with the casting of him, how, you know, you needed somebody that just had this innocence about him. Because in many ways, like, Robert is the only kind of pure soul in the movie. And and what he does in the end is it absolutely, like, pure, it's like the one good act in the movie, even if it happens to be, you know, murdering somebody. And it almost feels like he just comes out of nowhere. Like, he doesn't have a past, even though he talks about it and you get to know him a little bit. And he's not this, like, mythical creature. But I kind of like that he's just this, you know, just sort of appears inside. And Michael Saracen has those incredible eyes. He just looks like he's from another planet. Sidney used to talk about actors as creatures, and he would always say the best actors are creatures in that they're very singular physically, that you can't, mm -hmm. that, you know, they're not just beautiful, but they're, they're sort of alien almost. And those always, he said, are the, are always the best, the best actors. Like an alien um, puppy dog. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me at the end he does that. And I, I think watching it the second time, the first time I had a bigger problem with it because I didn't believe it. And the second time I thought a lot about the depression and I thought a lot about the times and sort of the, the context for the movie and how he might do something like that to put someone, everyone is miserable. Everyone on that dance floor is absolutely, utterly miserable. Think about Bruce Dern and Bonnie Bedelia, those two characters, you know, she's pregnant and going through this and they're so desperate. Everyone is so desperate to, to, to win and survive this. You almost believe that he would put someone out of their misery at the end of it. And the first time I didn't buy it. And the second time I, I thought, Oh, maybe I do understand this. Yeah, it's such a pure good act. It really is an act of kindness. And, you know, the ironic, the whole thing of this contest is literally killing people, but it goes on. Whereas when Robert kills somebody, he is then put to death for it and punished. But yeah, the show must go on after that, which is an interesting choice for that ending because it feels like it'll never end. It feels like they are in hell after that. We have what, four couples left at the very end? And, and it's, it seems like they're not going to stop at that point once you get that far. And how ballsy is it to not show who wins after all that? But to show, to, because it says that's not the point. The point yep. of this isn't that. Who wins, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, um, I forgot um, watching it the second time that he didn't show us who wins. And I went, mm -hmm. wait, we don't know. <laughs> well, and <laughs> the book has such a different ending because the book, you know, the, I mean, the contest is canceled because of protesters and there's an accidental shooting and poor Mrs. Layden gets a bullet in the head and it's still depressing because it means all of this was for nothing but I, I am so glad that the film takes that in a different direction because it is more haunting and it is it works better on film I think in, in that context 
the film also does a, a really good job of giving us more to these characters. I don't remember the sailor character at all in the book. I just remember the Bruce Stern and Bonnie Bedelia characters, and we don't necessarily meet too many other people on the dance floor. Occasionally, it'll be like, oh, well, this guy who they end up pulling out because he had a an arrest warrant or whatever. But we actually get to know these characters and, and see their foibles, and I love the way that they're introduced with that long line. And of course, now in you know 2020, we look at that line and we're like, oh, I know that person. I know that person. I know that person. But even in 1969, I like how they start to stand out from the crowd and that you realize these are the characters we're going to be following. Of course, they give them all something to do or something to say so that we're shown this is Sailor. This is Red Button's character. This is the pregnant one. This is the the blonde. The, the I guess the way they filmed it in sequence, and that the, because of the way the setting was, everybody had to essentially be on camera at all times. So Jane Fonda and Red Buttons and Susanna York are all there at all times, whether they're in the frame or not. They had to be there in case the frame would get to them. So and that works so well because you're not looking. You're always seeing somebody in the background, and it just really does fill that space well. And it does this thing. We're creating this whole society within the dance hall, creating this whole, it's not just claustrophobic. It's this whole kind of system, you know, that they create as they go. And the genius of these 15 minute breaks where you kind of stop and get to know people. And then you're invested in them in these 15 minute breaks. And then you go back out to the dance floor when they're doing like that race, which is horribly <laughs> tense for me when they're doing those races. And I, and watching the movie, realizing that they do it again and again, the, well, just doing it once was torture for me. And yeah. and that great moment when they're just painting the lines on the floor and the people who know are all commenting <laughs> on, oh, no, oh, yep. no. <laughs> it's really, it's really wonderful. But this whole idea of this little closed mm-hmm. world, you know, is is fascinating to me. And and again, I think Sydney, it's a triumph of Sydney Pollock's direction to sort of keep it so controlled you always know where you are you always know where everybody else is um it's fascinating to me and and what a pain in the neck to shoot it must have been just that they had these big panavision cameras and trying to do some of these moving shots with with these uh, large cameras and i don't know if they had multiple cameras that were able to be set up at the same time because just yeah the amount of angles on some of these things especially during that derby scene but even during those dance scenes it's just like wow this is really impressive and i love that he kind of starts off the dance with this really sweeping i think it's uh, 720 degree you know twice around the circle kind of thing which really shows this whole circular idea of the dance and then also the derby and really i mean i i want to say that gloria makes a reference to uh, being on a merry-go-round and this whole idea of them being horses going around on a carousel is really kind of a nice thing too because it carries through that horse idea that we're going to get especially at the end of the film what are you going to do I'm going to get off this merry-go-round I'm so sick of the whole stinking thing 
the mundane aspects of how they eat and when they take mm. showers and how long they have to sleep and cleaning their socks and doing these things and stuffing their shoes with with tissue and all the stuff they do this very mundane stuff that you become so micro focused on um, and that he gets you invested in it's amazing to me and how, how their hair has to handle all of this is brilliant and Jane Fonda's is the best example, but it's Susanna York's is also there. And just that, you know, Jane Fonda starts the film with this very styled of its time kind of haircut and it's straight and it's, you know, this clearly something that a stylish woman does when she's trying to break into Hollywood and just how it gets messier because she has 10 minutes to shower and style it and that's not enough time to dry it and it's going to naturally curl and then it just looks crazy and how a that is it's just such simple storytelling that works so well and she doesn't care yeah it shows that she just doesn't yeah. care at the end, she knows is, yeah 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 i loved hearing um pollock talk about the whole idea of them having a lot of makeup to begin with and then just less and less so they looked worse and worse and that he knew that that overhead lighting that they were using was just terrible lighting to make them look awful and that was exactly what they needed they needed to look haggard and just unkempt especially as the contest went on just to really show us that this isn't 24 hours, 72 hours, that we're going into 1,000 hours plus with this contest. Which is another great, simple storytelling device is that you have the timestamp up there, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm bad at math, so every time I'm like, wait, that's I have to divide that by 24 to figure out how many days. But you just keep seeing it, and you just keep seeing it, and you realize, oh, wow, it's past a month now. Oh, wow, it's at, you know, 40 days. It's at 50 days. My God, how how awful that is. And I guess they did, when they were um, preparing for the film, Red Buttons and Jane Fonda decided to, like, do the dance marathon for a few hours to see what it was like. And so I think it was like about like 12 hours that they did that where they were dancing and then they would take 10 minute breaks and then they, you know, they would do it according to what it was. And they were both just in shock and dead by the time they finished and realized, okay, we we know how to act this now. It seems impossible when they when I when they cut to that thousand hours and I thought, wait, that's a month. How could they how could they be doing this for a month? It seems impossible. I don't know how they could do this. And then I started reading about the dance marathons and they went on and on. And also the kind of genius of there's no one there at the beginning, because really, who gives a shit at the beginning? Right. You know, it's easy at the beginning and it's empty. And then also you see people, they do this great thing in the background where you see people showing up in tuxedos. Clearly, they were doing something else. And they said, hey, let's go check this out as a goof. You know, all these kind of swells that would show up to just to just sort of watch and check in on it every now and again. It was fascinating. And then the whole sponsorship idea, which was so cynical and interesting to me. Various dancers getting sponsored. I thought, wow. Um, it was it was very ahead of its time. And the other thing that I noticed, too, is that as a Sidney Pollack movie, it's very different because what you were just talking about, Mike, about the way it's shot and all that stuff is different than the way he shoots his other movies. His other movies are way more static and and still beautiful, but not this kind of super complicated technical achievement that this movie is. 
very, very different if you look at at his other movies. Not they don't this this obviously took intense planning and his other films are much I don't want to say simpler because nothing is is simple when you're making a movie, but they're much more traditional and rigorous in terms of how he how he shot them. Well, that he took over production from James Poe when they got rid of Poe. This was supposed to be his uh, directorial debut, and people did not have confidence in him, uh, especially Jane Fonda, who was not necessarily running the show, but she was enough of a star that it was just like, she better be happy. But when they moved him out and moved Pollock in, he had eight weeks to put this thing together. That's just amazing that he could plan all of this. I know they already had the sets built. He was already replacing actors when he got into this. I think it was, uh, what, Lionel Stander was one of the actors and got rid of him and brought in um, Gig Young. And it's just like, okay, wow, this is uh, incredible. And I know one of the producers was a uh, former agent who had, what was a Gig Young, Red Buttons, and Susanna York, was it? All three of them on his roster and brought all three of them in. And all three of them just give just incredible performance. Everybody in this movie is top-notch. And again, thinking about Sidney and the way he used to like to work, where he would spend a long time, eight weeks to him would be normally, especially later in his career, a kind of, of nightmare for him, where he he would really – he was – Every idea was instantly transparent to him. He was so smart and so careful. Um, and then to sort of, and, and it's, it makes a lot of sense, given that this is so different from what he had to do to sort of throw away all of his kind of comfort zone notions. And then he, he makes this film that's completely different because he had to. And um, it's fascinating to me. And it's, it's really amazing. I mean, the directing here is, is sensational. It's, I think it's actually better than the writing. There are things in this that don't, that don't quite work, but don't matter because the directing is so, so terrific. Also, when you look at it after reading the book and you see some of just the decisions, both in the performances and in whether it was the directing or screenplay, where it's made, it's adjusted for the film in the right way. And I think Gloria's character in the book is every other word out of her mouth is, I wish I was dead. Mm-hmm. And boy, is it insufferable. And it's only 130 pages, so you get through it pretty quickly. But in the book, it's, I think it's also more of that she is kind of destroying Robert in the book. He's the narrator, and you hear him kind of, his soul is dying a little bit because he is with this woman who just sees all of the bad in the world and just wants it to end. And on the on film, that that's still Gloria to an extent, but it's made tolerable. It's made understandable. It's not one note. And that is one of those decisions that you really have to work to bring to life on screen. I love those little arcs that they have where Robert stands up to um, the Bruce Stern character and is like, don't talk to her that way and just defends her. And then she starts to soften to Robert. And then when she sees him, quote unquote, betraying her with Susanna York, seeing them both coming out of the back room, she just says, right, just confirming that everyone is shit. And she has that whole thing with Gig Young, the Rocky character, where she goes in and there's not even a question that's asked and she manages to tell him no. 
I um, hope that little episode in there didn't shake you up too much. No. Cigarette? No. so nice and then after she sees this betrayal that's when she goes into rocky and really debases herself it's another thing in the book where con where you find out a little more about gloria and you gather and you can see it in this film men have never treated her well but in the book it's more specific right it's she had a husband she had she was trying to get away from her father she was trying to get away from her uncle there's just all of these things so that you know gloria like you know sadly many women of her probably stature at that time was abused by all of the men in power in her life and in the film they only have to say kind of brush up by that once where she just kind of has one throwaway line. And that's all you need because you see it in Jane Fonda's face that yes, this woman has every reason in the world not to trust any man. And that includes, you know, this doe eyed partner that she has and it is. And then when, when you see that break, you're like, Oh, and it's not that like you're wishing for this romance. It's just this kind of, you're sad for her that she sort of saw something to believe in maybe. And then that's gone. But even the- in the seduction, she, it's, she's kind of in control of that scene, which I also really like. And again, without words, the the difference between the movie and the book is the movie really leans hard into uh, the there but for the grace of God go I. You know, you spend the whole movie thinking, God, what would I do? And it could be the depression. It could be yesterday. You know, it's really this situation that's so unique. And once you buy into the situation, and and granted, that's historical more than anything, but you buy into this thing that you believe is really happening, you start to say, "How would I deal with this?" And you're, it's really, it's really this kind of thing where you're experiencing it as it happens. And and the movie really doesn't skimp on that it doesn't turn away from any of that it goes oh it uses this kind of repetitiveness um over and over the same kinds of things happening over and over but the the people themselves they're doing the same actions the same behaviors but they start to look different even gig young who's so put together at the beginning in his tuxedo and his this by you know toward the end he's always dripping with sweat he's never shot the same way in the end as he is in the beginning he just as much as Everyone. And the only guy who sort of stays the same, who's fascinating, is old Grandpa Munster, <laughs> um, the actor um, Al Lewis. Yeah, Turkey, who's there, and Turkey never changes. He's always kind of this constant. It's fascinating to me. And also, I want to say his last name is Conrad, the actor on roller skates. Yeah, Michael Conrad. Michael Conrad also sort of this sort of steady, steady presence that's there. Those two, Gig Young is just as affected and just as sort of sad about it all. And as harsh as he seems and as sort of by the rules as he seems, it's a fascinating character because he, there is a part of him that knows this is awful. And you kind of see that. And as much as he's exploiting the awfulness, he, it's also costing him something, and that's really hard to do. And I think that was a, a kind of testament to how well he played that. Yeah, he is a sad man. He's sad because he knows how messed up this is. And occasionally he does stop when he sees it getting to the point of 
oh no, this is really bad for this person. This is really bad for that person. And maybe that's also where it's where for, I'm just going to keep calling him grandpa Lewis, but where Turkey and where the, um, uh, the other main kind of roller skating guy where they're just, they're treating it like a job and they don't seem to have any of that sympathy and empathy and Rocky's problem is he does. It's, he it's does. the worst thing, right? It's one thing to be a monster. It's another thing to be a monster and know you're a monster. Well, that he grew up a monster, that he has been playing this game from the earliest days. And I, apparently they added that speech in kind of late in the game for Gig Young to have something to chew on and to give a little bit of his background, but not overdo it not to make us sympathize with him too much but that whole speech that he gives about his father being this faith healer you know something tricky my old man never got out of the fourth grade but when it came to people he didn't know his ass from his elbow you know what he was he was a faith healer I used to travel a circuit with him. I was the one he healed. I was his shell to get the crowd set up. Walk, my boy. When I lay my hand on you, you will walk. You will walk. A sudden old bastard. He thought it was him they believed in. But it was me. Yeah, it's show business. That's the thing. He makes the difference between the contest and the show. It's Robert thinks that there's a, a contest going on, but it's Rocky who knows it's a show going on. For the good of the show, that's what we're all interested in, isn't it? The show. No, it's a contest. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Isn't that what you advertise? The contest. Not for them. For you, maybe, but not for them. You think they're laying out two bits of throw just to watch you poke your head up into the sunlight? Or Alice look like she just stepped out of a beauty parlor? They don't give a damn whether you win or James and Ruby or Mario and Jackie or the man on the moon and little Miss Muffet. They just want to see a little misery out there so they can feel a little better, maybe. They're entitled to that. He would be such a great reality TV producer. <laughs> like well, they invented sleep deprivation. Well, he also you see him. He's singing and he's playing the piano, and you know these other. He's doing all these other things, and you realize there's there's just so much to him. That's what I love. And when you first meet him, he's just kind of there, and he's not dressed in his fancy duds yet, and he's just kind of interviewing everybody and weeding out the chaff. When he starts speaking and and you see him in this tuxedo and he's kind of put together and then later he's playing piano and he's singing and he's doing all kinds of things. It's it's a really fascinating character. And also at the beginning when there's no one there and he's doing all of this for no one is really amazing to me. Just amazing. Those first shots when it first starts where there's no one in this place and they're they're just doing it for themselves. And he says, just wait, <laughs> um, is, is, is terrific to me. Just terrific. I didn't tell you guys how I came to this movie. This was actually a first time viewing for me for this podcast. I was laughing hysterically when Gig Young starts doing the yowza, yowza, yowza thing. Because I immediately went to my source of all truth, which was Happy Days, and realized that they were parodying 
they shoot horses, don't they, with the they shoot Fonzies, don't they, episode with the dance contest and Richie up there going yowza, yowza, yowza. And I was just like, okay, like he just did that on the show. And I was like, okay, all right, that's what he's doing. And then when Gig Young starts doing it, I was like, oh my God. And just like all these little, you know, little synaptic uh, things went off in my head. I was like, it all makes sense now. Okay. Bonds? Yeah. Oh, good. There's only six couples left. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, Cunningham, hmm? what are those two words you start every sentence with? Yowza, yow. You're giving me a headache. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's all right. Well, the, I mean, the title has been parodied in a lot of things. I remember the Sex and the City episode of They Shoot Singles, don't they? you know, writing the outline, you know, they write outlines, don't they? They write articles, don't they? They record podcasts, don't they? I'm just like, yeah, this is too easy to do. It has become such a kind of part of the vernacular. And that was his best selling novel too. But didn't he only sell like 3000 copies or some, and they were all to French existentialists of this book. Yeah. I, that I don't know. He only wrote five novels, and two of them were adapted for film, albeit this one was... Actually, no, I take that back. Three of them were adapted to film, at least. Plus, he was a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. He lived. This man had a life. He did. And this movie was almost made like 20 years before. With Charlie make- Chaplin and Marilyn Monroe. Was, right? That's exactly it. And um, and then something happened, and Charlie Chaplin, I think, was forced to stay in Europe um, because he married a 12-year-old or something. And the rights languished, and and then they were picked up later. But people had been flirting with it for, for quite some time. Yeah, I found it fascinating when I started, because I'd read the book before, but I hadn't read about the book. And just reading that that first line of, really popular with French existentialists, and I was like, oh, duh, of course it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, he and George Simenon, and although there was a whole bunch of writers from all over the world that were kind of part of this yeah. this group, and and this book, this was the book of, of yep. all, for, for a lot of that. In some ways, I was thinking about this, and maybe it's just because I read this book recently, but how this is sort of, if Grapes of Wrath is the, you know, middle of the country, uh, young people and old people too, but primarily young people just suffering through and dying through the Great Depression, this is just sort of the West Coast version. Um, And I didn't even realize it until I kind of started going through a rabbit hole, but that, you know, Henry Fonda, Grapes of Wrath, Jane Fonda, they shoot horses, don't they? Mm-hmm. Just the different connections you can uh-huh. Yeah, I was reading comparisons between uh, They Shoot Horses and uh, The Stranger by Camus, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can kind of see that. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we are here on the coast, like almost in the ocean. We are at the literal land's end with this whole setting. And I love that Robert has this whole thing about feeling the ocean, feeling the pillars move on the boardwalk, and the way that he strains for the sunlight. It's just this wonderful image of him, especially when he's on his tippy toes, and that last little bit of sunlight is fading from the sky, and he's just trying to get his own like a plant just trying to straining for that last little bit of light (laughs) something that um michael sarazen said in one of the commentary tracks was i guess there was a cut scene that was in there where he sort of has a freak out where 
at one point he gets really worked up and has kind of like an Alice moment. And as an actor, he hated it and he felt like this isn't right. I shouldn't, if I do this, it takes away from my decision at the end of the movie. When Robert shoots Gloria, you have to believe he is doing it sane of mind and with all of the best intentions. And if you see him going crazy halfway through the movie, that kind of skews things. And I think that's really right and important that he is somewhat a constant in this, that you have to have that, you know, that that one sort of he's kind of the ingenue in this movie in some ways. He was an interesting actor too. I mean, his the, I, I I don't know. He made I, I think he made a bunch of movies. I don't know that he made a lot of movies, but I think about him in this, and I think about him in I think Peter Proud, <laughs> and um, the reincarnation of Peter Proud, and a few other movies. He was he was it was an interesting an interesting choice, and he had this sort of interesting moment then. Just thinking about the casting here and thinking about Gig Young and Jane Fonda, the fact that the, this group of actors are – and Red Buttons. Wh- what other universe would all those four <laughs> actors be together? You well, know, it was it's very almost, strange. Was it almost Warren Beatty as uh, Robert Beatty. at one yes. point? I think his yes. name was thrown in there. Yeah, but he had too much world knowledge behind those eyes, you know, just I could see even a young Warren Beatty, it looked like he had experience, whereas Sarazen just looked like, like you said, he's he's the ingenue, he's the, the doe-eyed guy coming in. Mm-hmm. Not an old soul. Yeah, and I think that makes it work, too, when he walks in and says, okay, I'll do it. And he also looks at Jane Fonda, don't underestimate looking at Jane Fonda and saying, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Whether that be a 1969 Jane Fonda or a 2020 Jane Fonda. Yeah, and it works. And it works. You're not – it's funny. You don't question it. And when I went back just to look at the book ahead of this, I thought, oh, wow, there's a whole other thing going on here. There's a whole other story before we even get there, you know. And um, I remember Sidney saying once why he didn't do Rain Man which spoke to this, which was he said he didn't direct Rain Man, didn't end up doing it because he couldn't figure out how if Raymond had a sealed trust, um, how the Tom Cruise character, his brother, would ever be able to find him. He finds out he has a brother. How could he do it? And so they walked away. And then he showed me a clip of the movie as it is. And it's basically Tom Cruise walking into the bank walking up to some woman sitting at a desk and saying, my, that's a nice blouse. Cut to him pulling up in front of Raymond's institution. <laughs> and he, he was so, he was someone so obsessed with this kind of logic that when, and more and more, especially later on in his career where everything had to make a certain kind of sense and every idea was instantly transparent for not being logical and yet this, the guy just stumbles into the dance hall and she says, and Gig Young says, you, come on over here. And he says, okay. And it's the equivalent of, of the Barry Levinson choice in Rain Man to say, why, that's a nice blouse. You're okay. <laughs> You're just fine with it. It's Jane Fonda. <laughs> and he, but he's not even wearing good shoes. He's no, not those even- stupid <laughs> cowboy boots. Jeez. That's yeah. the real horror of this. I kind of wish they made him dance in those cowboy boots. Imagine doing the derby in those cowboy boots. So brutal. Yeah, I kept thinking, kind of like you, Emily, I kept thinking of things like um, when they talked about sponsorship, I kept thinking of the Hunger Games. 
the way that they tell the story in these kind of vignettes and going from couple to couple, I kept thinking of Battle Royale. There were other times just with the exhaustion that they're feeling. I kept thinking of Stephen King or it might have been Richard Bachman, The Long Walk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, it, it just played on so many of those things or so many things we're able to take from the, this film. But then, yeah, reading about these actual marathons and that these were such a real thing and such a phenomenon for what was it like 13 years 12 years that these things went on like the first one was 1923 and they lasted all the way up to 1935 before they started to outlaw them and again it was kind of this thing that's in the book that's not in the movie which is this like mothers against decency or you know these 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 kind of groups and just the danger that was in there but i did appreciate that they took things from real life that weren't in the book and put them into the movie this whole idea of we are billing you for all of the Oh yeah, I know that. The food, Only if you win. Yeah, and that you know he, he's keeping tabs of all of these things, and that they could walk away. There was one woman who won a marathon. Um, I can't remember her name, but she won a marathon, and she ended up with like fifty-two dollars, and the pi- prize was a thousand dollars. Yeah, I owe my soul to the company store. It just makes me wonder, like, it, not that is this the start of reality television competitions, but there is so much of it that just feels like such a perfect mirror. Oh, yeah. I mean, you even have alliances being formed and broken. The way that they switch partners. Fan favorites. Yeah. The, uh, you know, parlaying your fame uh, afterwards into some kind of work, right? The Red Buttons character, and I, I've never really seen anything where I'm just like, oh, Red Buttons, he's fantastic in this movie. It's usually like he plays smaller comedic roles to me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not that familiar with his filmography, but he is just, he kills it in this movie. Him doing the tap dancing at the beginning and just showing that he isn't too old, that he's talking about how he fought in the big war, which would have been World War One at this point, and that he is, struggling and that he eventually dies of the heart attack that scene wow wow just yeah <laughs> uh, amazing and apparently again listening to the audio commentary the way that he like wound himself up like ran and ran and ran and ran and ran until he was like purple in the face and then was like okay yeah shoot it he said he's like you know we were on our feet for so long filming he's like i was in the best shape of my life by the end of this movie so yeah it was gonna take a lot for me to look like i was having a heart attack but we got to that point you're like geez dude it's movies right what's the the laurence olivier quote have you tried acting have you tried acting and with it's i kept thinking because i really think of red buttons more as somebody from you know friars roasts (laughs) (laughs) and you know nobody gave me a dinner and so on and and he and looking at him in this he was a great actor he was so good he was so good and really sympathetic and so what was amazing and and it was so clearly older than everybody what are you Um, talking about he was 31 yeah but but yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and and just and so sympathetic and so interesting um and just a great idea for this you know then the whole sailor and the whole i just loved it as i was watching i'd forgotten that he died actually i thought oh he should win right (laughs) he should win i kept thinking at the end who would win of this group when gloria is screaming at him and carrying him yeah. and i mean it's a good like 
what full minute of him being dead and her oh, yeah. dragging him across like that that scene really is it is a triumph of, of everything in a, that you have in a film of mm-hmm. the camera work of the performances but just you know the desperation in her in that scene just kind of tells you i think it's so important because it gets you to that point where you see as much as she is so defeated by the world she has this fight in her mm-hmm. and she is dragging a dead man around on her dead feet and it's still not enough and she finally gives up when she has given it her absolute all and that that scene then leads to such another powerful scene. It's like you could have ended there and taken a break and gone back and, you know, hit the showers. And they literally do. They go back and they hit the showers. But then this becomes Susanna York's moment and her whole arc here of coming in and doing this monologue from St. Joan and being this perfect blonde with this perfect white dress that she has on. And I loved uh, Pollock was even talking on the uh, commentary that he imagined that she would only eat white food, that that's how pure she was. And her name was Alice LeBlanc as well. So Alice the White, my God, in the way that Rocky takes her dress and brings her down to everyone else. He, he brings her low and, and sullies her. Oh my God. And then that she has this freak out and that whole scene. And that's another moment where gig young is just doing a fantastic job. And then her Susanna York doing such a great acting job as well. It is just, I was riveted watching it. I think Jane Fonda described her as Ophelia passing through I'm like, oh, that's so poetic. I love it. I was sort of disgusted with myself because when Gig Young is explaining why he did it, I thought to myself, oh, that makes good sense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I were you, I get it. Yeah, of course. You have to, you have to, you have to make the audience relate to her. Of course. <laughs> take away the, take away that she can't look too good. Can't look too good. Of course. That makes, I get it. Sure. And, and then I felt completely complicit with, with him. I read an early draft of the script and the scene of Robert and Alice when they are, um, I mean, it's like an aborted, uh, lovemaking scene and that whole strange thing of her wanting to be talked to the whole time. <laughs> it's really <laughs> fascinating. Tell me about your father. Tell me what he did for a living. Mm-hmm. Weird, uh, whatever turns you on, I guess. Really hot talk there. Yeah. The panties that your mother laid out for you. <laughs> in the script that was actually outside and that was taking place under a boardwalk and you actually got one of the guys who you see in the movie this uh, african-american gentleman throwing garbage off of the pier and landing right next to them if not on them but i thought it was smart that they pulled them inside and kept it all inside so that we just never really leave the place until that end scene where we go out and again it's it's not really the outside because it is completely draped in fog and looks like you have just entered into this surrealist nightmare. I wouldn't have believed the big under the boardwalk. I wouldn't have believed them being able no. to get out and in that amount of time do that. No, I wouldn't have believed it. And then the, the idea of her saying, talk to me, I just found so sad. I just found this woman so desperate, who so desperately wants to be an actress and so craving this kind of being seen, this notion of being seen and utterly alone. And the guy she's with is a, is obviously 
not focused on her. <laughs> um, and it was, it, I just thought that was so sad. Talk to me when you're lying there and on the ground on the floor of this room they're in. And just tell me about your father. Tell me anything so that I can pretend that we have some connection it was kind of amazing. Yeah, and that the boyfriend or the dance partner, I should say, he ends up getting a gig, which is exactly what she wants. And it's kind of what Gloria wants as well. And the way that Gloria is just like the whole system is rigged. You know, the the central casting is all sewn up or else I could have broken into pictures. And just she's got such a gripe against the world for good reasons, but just that she has that and that man just again, Fonda just nailing this role and just being so bitter but rightfully so. And especially when you think this is in the depression, she has to be wondering where her next meal is coming from. And that this is one of the few places where she can have a roof over her head, have steady meals where Bonnie Bedelia as pregnant Ruby can actually have food for the baby. Yeah. If you ever at any point in the movie wonder, Oh, how bad can things really be? Just realize that there's this woman who's probably like six or seven months pregnant who is doing this still. Mm -hmm. because. How else is she going to eat? Yeah, and this is not her first dance contest. You- they, they won one in Oklahoma or something. I yep. forgot. Painful to watch her be dragged around the dance. Oh, yes. And she's, it's such casting because she just has that beautiful, open, young face that you just, you look at her and immediately like your heart goes, oh, I hope you're okay. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's one of those things where, um, in the when she was talking in her interview, she said, you know, she got the script and she's looking through it and realized, oh, I don't have a lot of lines and thinking it was a small part. And it's sure, like she probably just has like a handful of lines in total, but how important her character is, because just that face, whenever you see it, kind of reminds you of exactly where you are and what the situation is. And a long way away from Die Hard. And then the moment when she is up on stage singing the best things in life for free, and you're just like, oh, my God. Oh, wow. And just thinking again, like, this is the depression. You couldn't afford anything other than sunshine and clouds. (laughs) And they're throwing these just coins at them whenever anybody. Oh, my God. That was also awful that they kind of debase themselves just so people in the audience can throw them, you know, a dime or a nickel. Ugh. (laughs) On, uh, I think it was a director commentary where Sidney Pollack, when they got to this scene, he kind of said, like, yeah, we know it was a really e- – like, it, it's such kind of an easy thing to do on one hand. Like, oh, sure, take this sweet pregnant woman and have her sing this song. Mm-hmm. But it's just – it work- it's so on the nose, but it's okay because it's so perfect. Mm-hmm. And you believe that that's exactly what they would do in one of these things. I love that easy come, easy go is kind of the theme of the movie and then rewatching it and hearing that and that eerie music that they play at the beginning and the end. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, the theme is there because that yeah. music at the beginning is just so warped. It's like this weird electronic version of something. And I'm just like, what is going on here? But it really fits the scene so well. Yeah, it's, it's that carousel feeling again, too, of just this instrumental music that isn't isn't terrible, but there's just something slightly off about it, and it just keeps going. All of the music over and over, and and every time you would hear the music start in the background, I started to get tired. I found it triggering, just like it must be for them. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> the band is basically making them their their 
train monkeys. You know, it's just like, okay, now I'm going to play Pop Goes the Weasel, so you need to step it up. And now I'm going to play this, and it's going to get even faster. And when they do those derby songs, where it's just like the can-can music and stuff, it's like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. The couples can be there swaying and easy, and then the band pops up the tempo, and then they're expected to go with it. And it's just, they are, they have no control over their lives. They're just there for entertainment and this kind of bread and circuses for the depression crowd. And the band looked refreshed and fine. The band never changed. The band was this relentless thing. And the music was oppressive. You know, the music was really oppressive at a certain point. Um, you wanted, you those moments of quiet when they were, when you would, they were almost like these shock cuts where you'd cut to everybody lying there in bed. And it was, it was so welcome. <laughs> They paid homage to the book with the in the the book is the story of the marathon is being told as a flashback. And in the uh, the movie, we do have the flashback to Robert's uh, young days at the beginning, but it's pretty much told as just this is now. And then we have these flash forwards to what's going to happen to Robert after he shoots Gloria in the head. And I love that. And I love that they're shot. And I know that it was probably for budgetary reasons and they weren't given a lot of time, but this really stark, almost expressionistic way of shooting these scenes. Yeah, the court didn't look like a courtroom. It looked no. like a strange, empty. There's no one else there. The you know the interrogation room, all of that, and also the idea of a flash forward at the time was was very unusual. No one really did that. The horse stuff was interesting to me. Even, you know, they did that for the credit sequence. I didn't really understand why they were running after the horse. Had the horse gotten loose? And I didn't understand that that was his grandfather. I didn't, none of that until I read about it later before I watched the, the movie the second time. But the first time I'm, I'm wondering why they're chasing after the horse. And it's so beautiful and in the open and you kind of, you understand it because, because from the context of it, but it was interesting that they just kept that kind of this sort of very subtle impressionistic thing. And I think the courtroom was definitely another version of that. Kind of reminded me of like Stranger on the Third Floor. I mean, it's that much of a pared down nothing but, you know, the judge and the gavel. And I'm surprised there wasn't a noose um, shadow hanging behind him. The Especially the first time you see it, because I'm trying to go back in my mind to when I first watched it. Because you don't, I mean, I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't know the ending. I didn't Mm -hmm. think much of what the title actually meant. And so the flash forwards, I remember just thinking like, I guess those will make sense at some point. Not really thinking ahead to what actually, even though it's really obvious, probably when you watch it, knowing anything about the movie. And I kind of watched this time kind of debating back and forth, like, what are those doing for the movie versus if you took them out, what they would do? And I think they do go a long way in just even if you haven't figured out exactly what it is, there's just this this cloud hanging over that, yeah, things are bad, but they're going to get even worse. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I read the book on Kindle, and then I was reading an article about the book, and they were saying that those – because in between the chapters, there are quotes from the judge, and apparently in – the print version of the book, which unfortunately I didn't read, the, those quotes get larger and larger until they are almost like um, half the page is just the words. That sounds incredible. I, I I now need to go pick up the actual paperback of this. You know what else, too, now that I think about that, 
that I didn't think of when reading the book. But those basically, they do, they kind of introduce each chapter with one line from the judge at the sentencing. And when you realize, kind of in hindsight, that that takes up, what, probably less than 30 seconds of a judge issuing a verdict, but yet that covers the entire two months or however much amount of time Robert is in the dance contest of just this very weird um, kind of twist of time in thinking how long it feels, but yet how quick these moments are in the end. And it's interesting, too, just thinking about, as you're talking about this, about filmmaking versus writing a book, there's a lot of ideas in the book. There's a lot of interesting ideas. And if you have them all in the movie, they start to fight themselves. And what's interesting about what he did, what Sidney Pollack did as a director here is he really set rules for himself. For example, staying inside, not doing mm-hmm. it under the boardwalk, not, you know, certain things. Let's once we're inside, we're inside. And the flash forwards were very simple. They were just him. They were all his point of view. He never broke that. And if, if you added anything else to it, it's, you can do that in a book. You can do all sorts of things in the book, but if you do it in a movie, you start to lose um, you don't know where to look, if that makes sense. <laughs> and um, and it's okay in a book, but but he was very disciplined that way in the movie. These are the ideas we're going to embrace in the movie, and we're going to. And so, in that regard, I think it's a very very strong adaptation to be able to lose that, to have the discipline, to be able to say, "This is what's going to work for the movie, and this mm-hmm. won't." Well, and that I think the movie is really from without it being you know, overly obvious about it. It's three character perspectives. It's Mm -hmm. Gloria, it's Robert and it's Rocky. Mm -hmm. We see all three of them in private moments, but it never feels like, Oh, whose movie is it? Like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, sometimes it like, had they done a scene of Alice doing her own thing, that becomes a little more um, scattered. Even, you know, the quick moments we get of, Ruby and Bruce Stern, whose character name I can't forget, can't remember. Like it's just kind of as if you were as if you were Gloria walking by them. It's smart in that it didn't have to because the book is Robert's perspective, but it didn't have to limit it to his eyes. Like it's really takes those three characters and says, okay, these are the three who we're looking at it from. Until Alice's freak out though, you know, in the shower. That's in a way also. I guess it's Rocky seeing it and Rocky seeing it. Though it begins before he comes into the room, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's mm-hmm. that's a really good point. I never thought about that because we shouldn't know about Gloria going back to visit Rocky. We shouldn't have that moment of Rocky talking to Turkey about his father. But it is nice that we have that three point perspective. It all works. It all it does. Works. Yeah. Even and that's why you don't shower. do narration in a film. Yeah, exactly. Because then it away. wouldn't work. I was really surprised when I was reading up on dance marathons as well, because I didn't realize that horses also were a term that were used in dance marathons. So there's a quote that I read, which was, uh, only the horses stay on the grinds and spirits, but up in the early part of the show before it gets tough, those who can sing and dance make a boodle. I love these terms here. <laughs> <laughs> then they usually scram. They scram before the rules get tough. By horses, he meant the desperate ones, the ones with no place to go. They got no brains, they, so they got lots of guts. They can outlast the daintier ones easy. Horace McCoy worked as a bouncer at dance marathons, right? 
I think that was his experience. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a war hero, I guess he was a fighter pilot mm-hmm. in world war one, but then wanted to write, but then also wanted to marry a lot of women and not pay for child support, I think. But one of the like odd jobs he worked was a bouncer at dance marathon. So I think that's where he got that point of view from things, which is the best place to be in a dance marathon is to be the bouncer on roller skates, you know. I do love that moment, too, when he shoots her, and she's the one that's falling in that field, the field that we saw from the beginning, and it's the Mm -hmm. only time we see Gloria outside of the narrative that we've seen her in the entire time, that strange moment where it cuts and she's falling. It's just so beautiful, and the use of slow motion in that. And she's so happy. That smile on her face is fantastic. The use of slow motion there, the use of slow motion during the first derby and the way that they cut and hearing Pollock talk about how they were using math to cut the frames and just getting shorter and shorter by different increments until they, boom, hit that slow motion. Oh, wow. That really kicked my ass. It was, again, so technical in ways that I'm not used to from his other movies. It was really, really interesting. And it was cut by, I think, Bill Steinkamp, who cut most of his movies until his son started cutting. Frederick Steinkamp, I think. And then his son, Bill, started cutting with Sidney later. Just all of that. all You felt that. You felt the way that would ramp up. And that kind of avant-garde jumping back and forth, the way a lot of that, the movies in the 60s, American movies in the 60s in particular, were cut that way. I wonder, though, if the Sidney Pollock later in his career would have had her fall in the field. Mm-hmm. If he would have said, no, it's too on the nose. It's too mm-hmm. saying what it's about. Um, if he would have done that, it's fascinating because it was, I watched that and I thought, huh, that seems, it seems like so obvious in a weird way to, 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 to sell the thematic idea of it. Um, and I don't know because he was so allergic to those sorts of things later. I don't know. And it is a beautiful moment. I really liked it. Um, but for me, I kept thinking, I wonder if he would have done that again had he made that movie. Mm. Um, obviously a futile exercise, but something I kept thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think about what people would do if they could make their movie again, even though that's stupid to think about. But sometimes. <laughs> well, if George Lucas has taught us anything, it's that we yes. should never think too hard about that. <laughs> Michael Haneke and Alfred Hitchcock might have something to say about that. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's now that you said that, I'm thinking because it kind of surprises me that this has never been remade or readapted. Because I think you could do a lot, like you could do a mini series where you had, you know, each episode was a different character. You could do a musical version of this in kind of a really like dark, discordant way. And now I'm thinking of like, well, who else could, you know, if you were to just remake it, if you're just going to take the same script. Uh, and make another film of it, who would you have do that? And now that you said Michael Haneke, I can see it. Well, they did a play. I think there was a play, a theatrical version of this. I could see that. But um, I could for a musical. I really could. Well, I think Dennis Potter could have done this in the 70s. I think it's been updated. I mean, I think there's been all sorts of... There was even that great documentary, Hands on a Hard Body, which makes me think oh, about wow. this. Which yeah. just turned into a Broadway musical. Yes, which was then turned into a musical that Doug Wright did. And I think that that um, The Hunger Games and all the other movies you were referencing earlier, this thematically, this movie has been sort of um, hipped up um, all the periodically, um, Battle Royale and so on. And, and this idea 
um, it's almost quaint now, the dance hall version of it, you know, and I guess maybe it would work then as a musical, I suppose, but, but um, it is being done all the time. This is the idea of it, just different sort of contexts. Emily, you have to talk about the clip that you found earlier. I wish I could reference whatever article I read that referenced it, but I'm looking around online and kind of, you know, just seeing what else I haven't learned about this movie. And I find a link to a 2004 fashion show by Alexander McQueen, who is a fashion designer who, who does pretty intense things. But it is about a what is it, about a fifteen minute clip. It's on YouTube, and it is it's his line. It's him, you know, introducing whatever his line was of two thousand four. But it is pure. They shoot horses. Performance art. The models are all come. The I mean, the styles were were kind of thirties. So you have that aspect of the designs. But they come out in pairs. At first, they're dancing. There's a sailor or two, and then they do a derby. <laughs> and then by the end of it, you are there's you know these models who are you know very flexible and and multi jointed. And so at the end, they're dragging them off the runway. It is a really cool thing that I'm sure you'll link to it because everybody, if you're interested in the film and thinking what other adaptations of this can we do? I, you know, as much as I'm saying Broadway <laughs> musical, I never thought fashion show would be one of them, but it's out there. Yeah, and there's a video for a group I'd never heard of before called Jack's Mannequins, and the video for Dark Blue is a dance marathon as well, and it is right there, right with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? I mean, to the point where it's like, yeah, this is more They Shoot Horses than this is just a dance marathon. The expression, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, has become, we talked about the beginning, just so part of, of the vernacular now. And I love, the only other movie I can think about that did this was Ruben Ruben, where you use the title of the movie at the very end of the movie. I love it when that happens. <laughs> and it comes out of nowhere, and you're surprised by it. Um, I was trying to think about other examples of that, but it was wonderful, just wonderful to see that. Well, and it works, too, because I don't know about you guys, but whenever I hear the name of a movie being said in the movie, I, I usually applaud. Um, and so it was <laughs> I always feel right like I'm at the end. I a drink or something mm-hmm. or take a shot. Lindsay Duran used to, a producer friend of mine used to call it, a, where she and her husband would call it, a, would say kugel. Every time that that would happen, they would just, it was a word they made up where they would say kugel. So my wife and I now always say when we hear the title of the movie, oh, kugel. <laughs> All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either 
Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. talking about they shoot horses don't they i definitely need to read a lot more horace mccoy after reading this because that book just it was incredible and you're right emily it's so short but it packs such a punch yeah and you will really i think appreciate jane fonda's performance when you do because you just imagine that character in a less what's the word nuanced actress's hands and she just becomes one note. It was one of the commentaries where uh, Michael Sarazen was talking, and he was talking about Jane Fonda and working with her, and how, to him, what he heard in, in Gloria was that she was always on the verge of tears. That whether Jane Fonda was playing it that way or not, and you know maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, that to him, especially acting so close to her, that he, in her, to his mind, what he was hearing as this character of this other character was that she just was, every word she said was fighting her just breaking down. And I, I love that that's how she came across to him as an actor. And whether that's what you hear watching it might be something different. But I think it just shows how in control she is of this character who is fighting with every fiber of her being to have control. And anger can get old quickly. And yet she, you know, anger and grief and I would say drunkenness are the three biggies that get old the fastest. And she really doesn't, she, she makes it feel it doesn't get old with her. You know, she doesn't, she isn't tiresome with her, her kind of at the world mm-hmm. thing. And it's, it's amazing. You, you end up really caring for her and worrying about her and, well, and rooting for her. There's an awareness too. Like I love when she's paired up with the, with Alice's old partner 
and they start talking and he just he says she's going off on something and he's like you know has anybody ever said to you and she's like yeah they've said it yeah like, doesn't even know what he's gonna finish but she yeah. knows she's heard it a million times <laughs> that's a great line <laughs> she is fully aware of, of how she comes across she's yeah. not making any apologies for it because she's probably tried that and, and learned long ago it doesn't get you anywhere I didn't realize that McCoy was also a black mask writer, that he was in the same you know, era as, as Chandler and it's and f- kind of followed that same path as far as going to Hollywood. But it seems like he was a little bit more successful when it came to uh, going to Hollywood and actually writing screenplays. Um, but now, too, I also really want to see uh, Kiss T- Tomorrow Goodbye and read that book. I've had No Pockets in a Shroud, the Jean-Pierre Maki film, for I don't know how long, but I just haven't ever watched it. So this will finally motivate me to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he also tried acting, and he did screen tests and couldn't get hired anywhere. So again, some of like that Gloria bitterness was probably very much him, which is refreshing in a way, because I think it's something... He, he translates well, and, and it's interesting that he translates that into a female character as opposed to where so often I think a lot of male writers, you know, just have that, you know, romanticized version of what they want to be on the page. And there's none of that here from any character. No, and but he does involve more characters in the book than in the movie. And he because he obviously has time, I think even... If I remember right, the marriage, the idea of them getting married is another, is a different couple. Or am I wrong about that? They come to them and ask them, and they, uh, I think Gloria speaks for him. And that's one thing that Rocky is like, oh, you're letting her speak for you. And Robert just is kind of bulldozed and they refuse or she refuses. And then it goes to another couple and they actually do end up having the wedding at the marathon. Wait, no, 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 no. If, if not to spoil the book, but. They We're don't spoiling everything to. else. Yeah, because <laughs> that the thing that. is, yeah, because they they ask right. Gloria says no, and then she talks to like another couple who are like, yeah, they asked us to, like, and you realize, oh, they're asking everybody, waiting for somebody to say yes. And but then meanwhile, like there's another derby, and the whole thing is like, oh god, don't let this couple get kicked out, kicked out in the derby because they have a big ratings thing coming up, right? It's it's like when you don't want Richard Hatch getting eliminated from Survivor because he's the reason people are watching. And then before the night of the wedding, when it's the packed house, is when the shooting happens, I think. Yeah, so we never get to that that beautiful romantic wedding that I'm sure would have lasted forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is also Hunger Games, right? They, they almost do the Hunger Games. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you and Peter would make a really cute couple, Katniss. The other thing that I kept picking up on, or while I was reading They Shoot Horses, is I kept getting a lot of Nathaniel West as I was reading it as well. I kept thinking like Day of the Locust or Miss Lonely Hearts. And so when I went out and was doing research on McCoy, seeing those two lumped together at the same time, I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense because there, there is that bitterness, I think, to both of those books or to all three of those books. Bitterness and cynicism both. If you were living in the Great Depression, I, I feel like you were probably not going to have the sunniest view of the world. Um, there was also In a Lonely Place then. There were so many books as part of that kind of um, sort of end of the world type genre, the sort of thing where people had given up. All, you know, Nightmare Alley, In a Lonely Place, there were all kinds of 
interesting books in that, you know, within that kind of 15 to 20 year period that overlapped and, and all, they all have this kind of vibe to them. They all, and, and different than Chandler in that they were, Chandler was, was kind of sort of the, a similar genre where these were all different genres. There were definitely people behaving badly would be the common denominator. But they were they were fascinating because they were really exploring the human condition, you know, and people in ex, in extremis, I would say. Whereas Chandler was exploring kind of the corruption of the human psyche, and these other books like uh, They Shoot Horses, they were definitely showing people at the end at their wits' end <laughs> and losing all hold of themselves. That's what they were. Whereas, um, you know, uh, Marlowe would would witness people in that kind of situation, but he was he was not that. And and there, you just you start going down the list. And I think I talked about the writer George Simenon. I don't know when he wrote Dirty Snow. I think that was late, much later. But his books feel like that too, as well. You know, very much so. And Jim Thompson later on also, they start to feel like uh, uh, akin to. To, to they shoot horses in a weird way. Kind of all part of that. I think Simeon wrote one that uh, Melville ended up doing, uh, Magnet of Doom, which is, yes. I don't know if that's still difficult to find, but for a while that was almost impossible to find in the States. What's funny too is that I think I read this somewhere, and I don't know how true it was, that McCoy had started this as a screenplay and then switched it into a novel. And whether that was that he couldn't sell it or that he found it worked better... And I'm trying to imagine a 19, this was 1939 was the book? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. 35, I think. 35. Set in 32 and comes out in 35. Set, okay. What this story filmed in 1935 would have looked like. I mean, it's, I guess it's pre-Hays Code, so it could still kind of be fairly dark and honest, but still, it, it's just, oh, I just would love to have seen. And I don't think it would have been as effective or kind of done the same things. But what would this movie have looked like if it had it been made at, shortly after the Great Depression? There was a fantastic article talking about how the book was censored, that Gloria's language was way too salty, that she was dropping F-bombs and they would be changed to she swore at him. And there was even a different ending to this, that there was a little bit of an additional thing where... She missed. Did it, he missed. Yeah, it did hit her in the brain. It hit her in that one sensitive part of the head that, regarding Henry, got shot in and that you can actually live as a more cheerful human being. It was that one of the other characters ends up buying a rubber hose and uh, hangs himself. So it was almost two suicides. It was death by Robert and then an actual suicide at the end. Huh. Big kicks, right? Yeah. And then whoever was writing this article, and I'll have to link to it um, in the show notes, they were also talking about that, kind of to your point, Emily, that there was a short story version of this and comparing some of the passages from one to the other and that Robert was more of a robust character in the first version and that they toned him down, that, that McCoy toned him down in the novel version. So he was not nearly as, I don't want to say wishy-washy, but he kind of just let the world happen to him versus what, you know, and I think that's why the existentialists kind of glommed onto this. It was just everything affected him rather than him being the effector. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I thought he was also in the novel, didn't want to be a film director. 
He did, yeah. And he was really excited. I think it was Mervyn Leroy in the movie, but it was a different film director in the book. It is Mervyn Leroy who stands up and waves the crowd in the movie. Yeah, and in the book, yes. he kind of has a fanboy moment where he's like, oh, what should I say to him? I don't know what to say. And he goes over and he just kind of says hello, and that's it. And then he walks back. He's like, well, okay, I did that. Uh, all right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. <laughs> That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at The Cow. After that, we'll be taking a bit of a break from 1969 films as we dive into a month of Polish movies, followed by a month of French films. But don't you worry, we'll be back to 1969 here and there as we go throughout the year. Join us, won't you? Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Emily and Scott. So, Emily, what is going on with you, ma'am? Well, you can always find my writing at DeadlyDollsHouse.com, where I mostly talk about fairly not good horror movies. And then on the podcasting front, um, I do a show called The Feminine Critique with the wonderful Christine Makepeace, who's been on this show a few times. Uh, We have been focusing lately on films by female directors. So last few episodes, we did one on Strange Days. We just did one on Love and Basketball which is a fantastic movie that not enough people have seen. So have a listen and go watch that movie. And Scott, what's happening in your world, sir? I am currently editing a miniseries for Netflix that I wrote and directed last year in Berlin based on the Walter Tevis novel, The Queen's Gambit. That was a novel he wrote in 1983, right before he died. And Walter wrote The Hustler and The Man Who Fell to Earth, um, Color of Money, and Mockingbird, one of the great science fiction books ever. And this book is, The Queen's Gambit is about a young female chess prodigy during the Cold War in the 50s and 60s. And it follows her life from eight years old to 20. And she, you pick her up in an orphanage when she's very young, when she's eight, <clears throat> back then in Kentucky, where she, where she was living. They used to drug the kids to keep them compliant with the equivalent of, say, Valium. So by age 10, she's a drug addict, but she's also the the janitor at the orphanage teaches her how to play by Bill Camp, teaches her how to play chess and discovers very quickly that she's rather brilliant. And the grown-up version of 
of Beth Harmon, as her name is played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, and the director, Mari Heller, has a role in this. She plays the woman who adopts her when she's 15. She's, Mari plays a very lonely housewife whose husband is sort of a traveling salesman and a philandering salesman who encourages her to sort of find a companion. And she and this woman become very close and begin traveling the country, making money, playing chess, winning chess tournaments. And ultimately, she ends up playing the Russian grandmaster in 1969. And does she get shot in the head at the end of it? She does not. No one is shot. No one is raped. And no one is hung. So based on very different than my last one. So it was very nice to just focus on the extremely cinema board game chess. (laughs) Yowza, yowza, yowza. And that's coming out this year? That's going to come out in, um, I think, October. If you want to move that up, that's fine, because I'm just like kind of Netflixing and chilling for the next couple of weeks here. <laughs> right now. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> so unusual. I, I mean, wh- wh- there's so many other things you could be doing with your day these days. <laughs> yeah. Go out on the town, maybe go to a dance marathon. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Thank you. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.